Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm not Bronwyn Maddox. I'm James Nixie, director of the Russian Eurasia program, and I'm sitting in for Bronwyn, who's away this week. On the podcast this week, we'll be looking at the Wagner Group, the shadow paramilitary organization and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who have close ties to Vladimir Putin. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Wagner has been active on the ground and involved in some of the war's fiercest fighting, notably around Bakhmut, of course. We'll discuss this, Wagner's relationship with the wider Russian armed forces and its ties with Putin, and the increasingly tense relationship between Prigozhin and senior Russian leaders. Also on the show, we'll be discussing the latest developments from Ukraine in the war. With Kiev's counteroffensive apparently beginning, the world woke up to the news this week that the Kharkovka Dam along the Dnipro has been destroyed. We discuss the impact of this disaster on Ukraine, as well as the recent fighting in Belgorod, the drone attacks in Moscow, and their significance to the war. Joining me on the show this week to discuss all of these topics is a fantastic panel. Patricia Lewis is the director of our international security programme. Welcome back to the show, Patricia, your fifth, sixth time. Thanks, James. Are you saying I've outstayed my welcome? <laughs> Not at all. Welcome back. Joining her is Ed Arnold, a research fellow for European security at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Welcome back, Ed. Morning. And last but not least, Samantha Bendern, Associate Fellow on the Russian Eurasia Programme at Chatham House and journalist based in Paris. Welcome back again, Sam. Four for fifth time again, I think. <laughs> yes, good morning. OK, great. Right, let's turn to the Wagner Group. And Sam, can you tell us a little bit about the role that Wagner has played in the war so far, how it has been deployed in the fighting? Well, the Wagner Group really came to prominence in the war in September 2022, when uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is one of the Wagner leaders, that there's a whole debate as to who is really leading Wagner today, but so I will call him one of the leaders, was seen going around Russian prisons recruiting convicts and offering them a certain amount of money and, more importantly, pardons if they went to fight for six months on the front line. And so that this is really when, when Wagner uh, became prominent in, in this phase of the war, though I, I will say that Wagner was um, an important player in 2014-2015 in the Donbass. And the, the biggest role that Wagner has had in the war has been in the taking of Bakhmut. And Yevgeny Prigozhin took it on as his, his personal mission to quote unquote, liberate Artyomovsk, which is the Soviet name for Bakhmut and what Wagner insists on calling a Bakhmut. What's interesting is that Yevgeny Prigozhin also said, as soon as Bakhmut had been taken, said, well, we, we will withdraw our men now and the Ministry of Defense can take over. And Wagner has withdrawn their men from Bakhmut, and they're now in the hands of the Ministry of Defence Troop. And as for the future role that Wagner will play in this war, I think that this is going to get very muddled with what is happening inside Russia and, and internal Russian politics. The um, Yevgeny Prigozhin has claimed that if he were in charge of the, the operations in the Belgorod region, where the Free Russian Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps, which are anti-Putin Russians who are fighting in the Ukrainian army or next to the Ukrainian army, have invaded part of Russian territory and the Russian army seems incapable of getting rid of them. Yevgeny Prigozhin is now saying that he would clean up the job if he were given the opportunity. So his future role in the war is a lot of different opportunities for him. And maybe we can talk about that a bit later. 
Ed, can I turn to you? Can you give us an assessment of how militarily effective Wagner has been so far in this war, especially in the Donbass? Is it quality? Is it quantity? What is its real role? What's its significance? Well, I mean, it's really been mixed. The first point is that its role has changed throughout the war. When this was still a special military operation, Wagner force elements were assigned to more special forces tasks and very early on in the first 72 hours assigned to capture or kill President Zelensky and other Ukrainian leaders, which, which did fail. And then, as Samantha said, they've moved into a sort of trying to go towards achieving conventional military objectives, so the taking and holding of ground. And really, Ukraine is a proving ground for the organization as a whole to say it can do the whole spectrum of military tasks. Now, yes, in the Donbass, they have taken ground. It has been very slow. And I think we need to measure the effectiveness of Wagner against you know, relative to Russian regular performance, which has been quite poor. So I think their effectiveness has generally been overstated because Russian forces, regular forces, have need that support on the ground. I've already spoken a little bit about Bakhmut, and it's really been a strategic failure. They have taken parts of the other city. You know, US intelligence suggests that Russian forces have lost around 100,000 troops in taking it. Prigozhin has already requested an additional 200,000 troops and ammunition to go further into other areas. But as Samantha said, they now have a period of almost two months of recuperation. They're struggling to get out of Bakhmut because Ukraine are pressing on the flanks. So it's quite uncertain when they'll be reinvested and what their objectives will be. Well, let me let me just let me just follow up on that before I turn to Patricia. One second. How much difference do you think a, a PMC like Wagner makes on the ground? Is it, is it is it militarily significant to the outcome of the war? It is in terms of numbers, because actually, I think from a Russian offensive potential, they they didn't have the numbers unless they lent on Wagner a little bit. I mean, in terms of their advantages, yes, numbers, but also the quality. And this is not just a Wagner thing in Russian military and also Ukrainian military. In a war of attrition, your quality of forces go down quite a lot. And at the moment, Russians are essentially using disposable troops, line infantry to hold the line, then specific assault units, and then also specialized and sort of Wagner's city across all four of those lines, depending on the quality of the troops. I mean, ultimately, they have been tactically poor, but they have started to make adaptions. They're they're fighting in a way that they can. They're just taking very, very heavy casualties. But actually, one I think of the most significant weaknesses of relying on Wagner in the way that Russia has is command and control. There's a lot of animosity between Wagner and Russian regular forces on the ground. And if you're going to be fighting a defensive battle, especially with drawing at the moment, it relies on mutual support and close coordination between different groups. That's going to be very, very difficult in the next couple of months. Right. I'll come to the schism between Wagner and the regular Russian forces in a second. But before I do, Patricia, turning to you, can we zoom out just for a second? And tell me, how do you see organisations like Wagner, PMCs in general, do you see them being used more extensively by countries in the future? Are they a useful thing for governments, non-democratic governments, to use when they get involved in violent conflict? Well, they're commonly used around the world. And this, of course, presents a problem for a number of countries. If we were, for example, to put sanctions on Wagner for its existence, it's more, I think, for its behaviour. So in the end, it seems to me that whether or not you've got private military contractors doing your dirty work for you or enhancing uh, your capability, it's really about how they behave, because in the end, you have to own that responsibility as a government. If you have subcontracted, you nonetheless own the responsibility for their behaviour. And if they behave as badly as they are doing, then it's up to you to reel that in. That makes sense. 
Sam, let's come back to you. Ed mentioned the schism, the bad blood between Yevgeny Prigozhin and some of Russia's military leaders, uh, the forces themselves. To what do you put that down? Is it theatre or is there a real genuine animosity between the two? I think it's genuine now. Certainly it's genuine from Prigozhin's point of view towards the Ministry of Defence. The Ministry of Defence has not actually said very much, as far as I'm aware, about Wagner. But Yevgeny Prigozhin has recently been talking about wanting to string Shoigu up on Red Square. Uh, he's constantly insulting Gerasimov, the chief of staff, and Shoigu, the Minister of Defence, in the most vile language you can possibly imagine. I mean, this is the kind of behaviour that's really hard to understand from any type of political actor anywhere in the world, the amount of vile language that's been used. And in one of his latest rants, which was on June the 5th, he again, he talks actually just about having them shot, uh, which is really quite extraordinary. He's also now starting to make fun of the spokesperson for the Ministry of Defence, Konoshenko. And in in a recent video, the Ministry of Defence claimed to have destroyed some leopard tanks. And Prigozhin makes fun of the fact that they were not leopard tanks, they were actually tractors. And he's gone on this whole sort of communications offensive again, using sarcasm. And it looks something like a, if this was not a war, this would be sort of a Monty Python sketch. It's quite over the top in the way he's now making fun of the Ministry of Defence and certain key figures in the Ministry of Defence. He has also recently, in in this 5th of June tirade, he made a number of very, very strange allegations. He said that, first of all, what Russia needs now is to become like Chile, to have a Pinochet-type protection. He's also suggested that Russia would be capable of using a tactical nuke on the Belgorod region. And he said, of course, we were like complete psychopaths, but that could be a strategy to adopt. So his his language is now getting worse and worse. And it's, it's very hard to understand what is going on, because a lot of analysts saying, you know, Prigozhin is completely controlled by Putin. Wagner is basically the child of the Russian military intelligence and everything that he does is carefully controlled. I'm finding that harder and harder to believe that this kind of behaviour is in some way coordinated. Okay, the rhetoric is definitely getting worse between them and in its own and amongst the politicians as well. But then I suppose so are, so are Russia's actions. Ed, back to you. Is it all about Wagner or are other PMCs available to Putin and co? No, there are other PMCs available and there's sorts of smaller proliferation of them. The issue is that Wagner is the most well-known. And back to my previous point, it's whether you see these operating independently or as part of a collective whole. I mean, the fact that Wagner can recruit from Russian prisons, I mean, it's very odd. And the fact that they're also very heavily constrained and also rely on Russian logistics. So there are a lot of different groups operating in the area, especially especially on the east, alongside the militias from Donetsk and Luhansk. And the issue with this is with proliferation of units, commanders, etc., that no one is really in overall command in the east. And that hasn't mattered fully up till now. I think it has blunted a bit of their offensive potential. And to the strongest person in terms of commanders, Prigozhin in the area, that's why there was this push towards Bakhmut. But going back to you know an earlier point that I made, I do see that this is a real problem now for where the Russians are because they're in a sectoral defence across a very long line. 
And as soon as one element is pressured, commanders need to decide whether to reinforce. And with the animosity between all of these groups, it's not very clear if those orders will be adhered to. And then if they have to make a withdrawal, Wagner covering Russian regular forces, other mercenary or militia forces, withdrawals, or the opposite way around. Again, it's not entirely clear that those orders will be followed through in the right way. If Ukraine can really exploit that division, then they're going to have successes in those areas. Thanks very much, Ed. Patricia, I know you want to come in a little bit on that, but I also wanted to ask, um, ask you in conclusion on Wagner, is it a terrorist group? Right. So, so what I wanted to say is that in the longer run, So adding on to Ed's and Sam's excellent point, in the longer run, what we've seen in other places is that these private military contractors can be, become their own factions. They can line up and then in the case of instability in the country, triggered perhaps into civil war, they can become a real problem for governments. So just to be aware that you sow these seeds, but they flower in peculiar ways. Whether or not we would call them a terrorist group, I don't know, because I think that most countries would really react against that because of their own use of PMCs. Yeah, we certainly sometimes get over Bogdani labels, perhaps, here in think tanks. Sam, I understand you wanted to add a very quick codicil onto this. Yes, just what I want to add to what Patricia said um, regarding the, the potential for civil war. I mean, it's exactly what's happened in South Sudan, in, in Sudan, I mean where basically a private military company that was that was set up by the government is now fighting with government forces. So it's, it's absolutely the, the premises of civil war are very clearly there. Right. Now, let's turn to the latest developments in Ukraine, tragic developments, in fact. Patricia, I'll come back to you, if I may. We woke up yesterday to the destruction of the Kharkovka Dam, along with the Dnipro, not far from the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Uh, widespread flooding, of course. Um, I saw in your tweet yesterday you said there was no immediate threat. I guess the word immediate is doing quite a bit of heavy lifting there. What's your assessment of the danger? So the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant does rely on water from the reservoir. However, it does have its own cooling pond. Um, And the IAEA said yesterday that they were looking at the drop of level of the reservoir, which will make a big difference to the ability to top up the cooling in the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. But there are two things working for us. One is a cooling pond, which they think has about a few months worth. And then the other is, of course, they are in shutdown, so they're not producing electricity. So although you still need to keep them cool, it's not as dangerous as it would be as if they were in full power mode. Understood. But... If you take us six months down the line, that danger, that immediate thing you were talking about, that is highly increased. I know you said you were gravely concerned about this yesterday, so you must be worried about, if you're not worried now, you must be worried for six months down the line. Well, yeah, six months down the line is six months down the line. What I'm really worried about is the fact that there have been verified reports of Russia moving in weapons and explosives into the power station itself, into the big halls that house the turbines, etc., And what we're really worried about, of course, is that there will be an exchange of fire or that they will use it as a booby trap. Goodness knows what's in their mind. And this is, of course, what Zelensky has said also uh, yesterday and today, these fears that are there. Now, the other possibility, and that's something we've been worrying about a lot longer, is they only have one outside supply line now in terms of electricity. So in order to pump the water around, they need some outside electricity and they only have one. So if that is broken, they have to then go onto internal power generators for which they need diesel, for which, of course, there's a limited timeline. So all sorts of other things can go wrong other than just the water level. Absolutely. There's a ripple effect and it's pretty horrific no matter what. Understood. Ed, can I turn to you again? In terms of the military significance of the dam's destruction, do you feel this will imp- 
I mean, how, how significant is it? And do you feel it will impede Ukraine's oncoming or already started, in fact, counteroffensive? So in the short term, it really prevents a Ukrainian amphibious assault over the Dnipro River. But this unopposed river crossing is one of the riskiest operations that militaries can do. So it was very unlikely that Ukraine would try something like that anyway. It wouldn't be where the main advance would come from. But there was potential for limited incursions to try and get behind the Russian lines and sort of harass the flanks. So in terms of Ukraine, I don't think it will impede... Ukraine's counteroffensive. It is really depending how Russia reacts to the ground now, because they ultimately have a very protected western flank because of the flood damage. Their first line defensive positions on the east bank, some positions will have been destroyed alongside equipment and stores, and it's unclear what engineering assets they have in the area and defensive stores that they have left, on whether they're able to actually start to put in hastier defenses slightly further back. Ultimately, for Russia, it gives them a little bit of freedom in the sense that they could redeploy some forces to the contact line further east of Zaporizhia, where it looks like the main Ukrainian thrusts coming, but they can't leave that area completely undefended. So it all really depends. And there is still a bit of a weakness in that area because Ukraine has shown offensive spirit and they still do have special forces in air assault units that could get over the river in smaller units and cause quite a bit of damage. Yes, for sure. Thank you. Sam, what do you think these attacks are intended to achieve? Do you think that they've been successful for Russia or are they perhaps a distraction as to on, on the wider war? Well, I think that there are a number of things and obviously with the caveat that there is no confirmation as to who has caused this explosion and whether it was an explosion or whether it was just a weakening of the dam. There are images of an explosion taking place on the morning, very early in the morning of the 6th of June. So that does point to it being an explosion. If it is the Russians, what would they be hoping to achieve? A number of things. First of all, as Ed explained, to really make things a lot more difficult for the Ukrainians on the potential counteroffensive. It makes it a lot more difficult for Ukrainians to retake Crimea, which is one of the things that they have, um, one of their stated war aims. One of the other um, potential aims for counteroffensive that one can imagine they would have in mind would be to break the land bridge between uh, the Russian Federation and its internationally recognised borders and the, 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 the land that it has now taken on the southern part of Ukraine and to try and break through to the Sea of Azov, so to break Russian-occupied territory in two, which would obviously disrupt Russian supply lines on the other side of any newly regained Ukrainian territory. This would be a lot more difficult now because of the flooding and, and also in the aftermath of the flooding, the terrain will remain very marshy and very muddy for, for quite some weeks, depending on the weather. Again, I think if it is a deliberate Russian attack, the fact that it's coming now, just as the whole Belgorod disaster is taking on more resonance inside Russia, I think that it is definitely now the whole world's attention is on this disaster. So it, would it be a diversion tactic? I see the, the you know, who, who has most to gain in this, and I definitely see the Russians as having a lot more to gain notwithstanding the fact that I can't imagine the Ukrainians deliberately destroying so much of their farmland, so much of their civilian infrastructure, so many villages, and creating such pollution, which will take years to clean up. Sam, thank you very much. I think it's fair to say that whilst the Russians may not have deliberately planned this, then certainly the Ukrainians couldn't really possibly have done it. That brings us into the realm of conspiracy theory, it seems to me. But um, Patricia, Sam mentioned the flooding, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, because it's been described, we should go back into labels, 
then this has been described as eco-terrorism. And I wondered if this, you feel, as a security expert, is a way of war fighting for the future, whereby you're causing ecological damage, whether it's to human beings' living conditions, whether it's to prevent some form of offensive. Do you feel it's ecological dam busting has been done in the past in wars? Of course. Do you feel that eco-terrorism or eco-war fighting is a new way of, for Russia of fighting wars when they can't actually get it done in a traditional, conventional way? Yes, and I, I don't think it's new. I think uh, après moi, le déluge and all's fair in love and war is, is telling you a lot. These are old phrases. I think that what's clear to me, and I'm sure it's clear to everybody, is in having done this, they have decided that they are on the retreat, right? One of the big worries as well, and you know, this seems to be little reported on as yet, but landmines which the Russians have laid are now drifting down and they're going to provide another long-term hazard. So I think the other long-term issue, of course, is the agricultural issue, as well as people's livelihoods. There's the energy issue, because, of course, the hydroelectric power station was destroyed. We're not sure if that can be got up and running again. So I think there's all sorts of issues to do with that. I guess the worry that everybody has is, this is, is this a signal of worse to come? Is this a recklessness, a lack of concern for the environment, for the people, even for the people of Crimea in terms of water supply? Is this a signal of Russia's either loss of control or intent to create environmental catastrophe, in which case what is to follow? I think that's our bigger concern right now. And of course, we're all very concerned about the people who've been displaced and are being put at huge risk uh, for a long term. Absolutely. Hundreds of thousands, in fact. It's an absolute disaster for Ukraine, no doubt about it. Ed, can I switch topics once again slightly? Sam mentioned Belgorod. How has the situation there destabilised Russia, do you think? Who's involved there? And do you see it as a sign of, of weakness, essentially, from the Russians regarding Ukraine's counterattack? What's, what's going on in Belgorod? Yeah, I mean, overall, it is a sign of weakness and what we're seeing incursions by Russian units who are supportive of Ukraine, so the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Freedom of Russian Legion. I mean, they're fairly small scale at sort of company minus, though they do seem to have main battle tanks and other armoured vehicles as well in support. I mean, tactically, it is very limited uh, incursions sort of three to six kilometres over the border. And also, there's no indication that they are well supported logistically so actually those incursions are probably going to be limited but it really does politically bring up a couple of issues i mean one is the fact that the border is just not secured at the moment if this is able to happen and it brings a real sense of vulnerability to the russian population i mean it does start to fit the putin narrative of this being a bit of an existential war for for Russia. We've already mentioned it, but Wagner and Prigozhin have criticized the Russian MOD for this, that they can't even secure their rear areas. They've suggested that they'll go in to support. And also that has also been offered by the Chechen leader who's offered special forces to contribute to sorting it out. But also this could become difficult for Ukraine. Yes, they are fully Russian units, so they're not Ukrainian units, but this has always been seen as an, an escalation point that the US is especially worried about. So they they do need to be careful in terms of exactly what they're doing in those regions. Yeah, thanks a lot. I certainly agree that Kadyrov doesn't stay silent for long, and he's a, definitely a worrying figure for the future still, it seems to me, in Russia. Talking of Russia, Sam, can I finish with you on the Russia question? Obviously, the drone attacks in Moscow recently, the raids in Belgorod, as you mentioned. How is this playing amongst everyday Russians, if I can call them that? What's the feeling in Russia about how the war is going? I mean, it's very, very difficult to know exactly what is going on inside Russia because any opinion polls are very unreliable. 
What I'm hearing from Russians I'm speaking to who are still in Russia is that you do have some older people who are beginning to think that Yevgeny Prigozhin isn't such a bad guy after all. Even though he's still not mentioned on state media, people are aware of what he's doing. The Telegram channels are working really well. And the sense that I'm getting is that people are aware that things are very febrile, that there is the sense of what on earth is happening. But there does also still seem to be broad support for what they still call the special military operation. The Kremlin narrative that the whole West is now fighting against Russia seems to be working in many cases. A, a Russian sociologist I spoke to recently gave me a very interesting definition of Russian public opinion. And he said, you know, you've probably got between 15 and 20 percent who are absolutely clearly for this war and another 15 and 20 percent who are absolutely against it and who at least talk about being against this war in their kitchens. And then the rest is this sort of soft underbelly of people who are trying to stick their head in the sand, who don't want to think about the war, who don't want to know about it. This is the, the, this is the ground that the propagandists are fighting for. This is the ground that the few opposition people who are still able to get a voice inside Russia are fighting for. This is the sort of amorphous mass who are still very apoliticized. And once they wake up and go one way or another, then we will have to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. But as you and I were discussing just yesterday, of course, even the apoliticized Russians tend to want Russia to win. So there's a form of Stockholm syndrome going on here, it seems to me. Well, as Bronwyn says, that's the show. A big thank you to all my guests, Ed Arnold, Patricia Lewis, and Sam DeBendern. Do follow them all on Twitter, please. Their links will be in the show notes. A reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow, and subscribe. And do please leave us a review. To read more from our experts or to find more about our events or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, I am told, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programmes, including the Russia and Eurasia programme and the International Security programme. Next week, we'll be turning our eyes to India and to China. Goodbye from me, James Nixie. Thank you for listening, and Slava Ukraini.